Hey, it's in a book. Welcome back. It's been far too long since we met here in this dark corridor of the internet here, I guess, at the intersection of somewhere you want to go and somewhere you've never been. I am Lawrence Rouse, of course. I am coming to you from Raleigh, North Carolina. You are listening to It's in a Book. It is a fortnightly show where, approximately fortnightly, where we attempt to prove that whatever you're seeking, wherever you want to go, whenever you have a question, the object, the destination, the answer, it's in a book. And uh, we have a, a pretty good show lined up for you, I believe, this fortnight. This, uh, what is the old English equivalent of three weeks? It, it's actually been three weeks since I uh, asked you to meet me here. And the demands of, of my job, my day job, and, and family life have kept me away. But I think a week overdue is, is acceptable. And, and we'll work on limiting the instances where that occurs. This, this podcast, we will be talking about a book called Things Fall Apart. It's by Chinua Achibe. That's the way I've always pronounced his name. Uh, someone probably has a better pronunciation, but uh, I, I like that one. It works for me. And uh, he, he's an incredible author. Things Fall Apart, I believe, was his first novel. It is, it is one of my favorite books. Very, very simple. Very, very beautifully written. Very, very powerful. Um, it, uh, it certainly is a classic uh, a recognized classic and it's a book I think that, that everyone should read at, at some point in, in his or her life um, we will interview this podcast my very best friend from high school his name is Cedron Spaulding he is in large part the reason why I am the reader that I am today he, he inspired me to great lengths during our childhood together uh, through elementary school through high school to to read he constantly had a book in his hand and several more in his bag just just waiting to be read he is probably the fastest reader i have ever encountered and and i'm pretty fast myself i i essentially taught myself to speed read by accident just because i'm, I'm so hungry to get to uh, what's next depending on what i'm reading but Cedron inspired all those things in me, and uh, it was really, really great to call him up on the telephone and and talk a little bit about books. I, I'm not satisfied completely with our conversation. The sound quality, I'm still really working on on the telephone interview as far as sound quality. And I'd really just like to, to sit down together with him and, and uh, be face-to-face. Something about having the interview face-to-face far exceeds, I think, the the quality of the interview. The, an interview that you can obtain via phone. So, at any rate, uh, I will be talking to Cedron about books. I will be reading for about 15 minutes from Things Fall Apart, and we'll have a very short segment of current events. I was actually able to accomplish some reading in July, and we'll talk very briefly about uh, what I was able to read and about the book that I'm presently working on. It's a book that was recommended to me by a friend some years ago, and I'm finally getting around to reading it. So, thank you very, very much for tuning in, and we will get right into the show after the page break. 
notes in a book. So, current events for the month of August include a pretty pretty select list of uh, of titles that I managed to to tackle during the month. Uh, I believe I said in the in the last segment, July. Um, probably wishful thinking because I, I actually didn't read a thing in July. I, I didn't finish a thing. I read a ton of children's books. Uh, my son Holden gets. I don't know, somewhere between three and five books every night before he goes to bed. And I worked on some titles, but I didn't finish anything in July. Um, that's old news, though. In August, I got a lot of work done on the Gulag Archipelago by uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I still have yet to finish it. However, the the interview for which I was reading that book has kind of been placed uh, placed on a back burner construction on Cafe de los Muertos uh, downtown Raleigh is is really underway right now and the architect is actually uh, pretty taken up with that and with uh, all the other projects that he has going on so I'm not sure when we'll be able to sit down with one another and talk about the Gulag Archipelago. I am slowly, very, very slowly uh, trudging along in the craft of fiction by Percy Lubbock. Uh, certainly, that's no no indication of the quality of, of the book. It, it's just that, <clears throat> excuse me, being that my writing right now is is uh, pretty pretty non-existent outside of the the confines of my imagination. Um, the craft of fiction is is kind of on the back burner as well. Um, I've, I've focused more on on my newborn. Uh, I guess she's. I can no longer call her that. She's about two months old now, and uh, and family life, and of course my day job. Getting to the books that I did manage to read in August, though, uh, the first one was Absurdistan by Gary Steingarten. I, I think I started that uh, quite some time ago, but I finally finished it up. It was a really, really great read. Um, Gary Steingart, I will definitely be knocking out the other titles he's... Uh, He's written, I believe his first was called The the Russian Debutante's Handbook, something to that effect. Um, he's a satirist, and outside of the fact that he's occasionally a little too cute uh, with his satire, very, very readable, very, very poignant in, uh, in, in laying bare some of the more absurd elements of our society today. Um... The next book that I read was also by, by a Russian, uh, Mikhail Lermontov, uh, wrote a book long, long ago called A Hero of Our Time. I believe he was, he was one of the first Russian novelists, uh, and he inspired, uh, many, many future great Russian novelists. But A Hero of Our Time, uh, is, is a really incredible, fairly short read and uh, I really highly recommend if you get a chance that you at the very least pull it up on Wikipedia or, or some other such source and and just read a little bit about it and uh, if you have the time dive into the book itself it won't take you very long and, and I think you'll find that uh, you certainly won't regret having read it presently I am working on the Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar, pardon me here, I'm going to reach for the book itself, 
the brief and wondrous life of Oscar Wilde. Actually, uh, you can eliminate the and. It's simply the brief, wondrous life of Oscar Wilde. It was written by Juno Diaz.、Uh, it went on to win some some pretty prestigious awards,、uh, including the National Book Critics Circle Award and as well the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. It was recommended to me years ago. I am just getting around to it, and I don't regret at all that I finally picked it up. It's really a wonderful read so far. I'm having a little trouble with it、uh, along some lines that I will、uh, discuss with my friend first, and, and maybe I'll I'll later、um, reveal them here on the podcast. But all in all, I'm finding it to be a really, really excellent title, and I, I highly recommend it to to anyone who has the time to、uh, to pick it up and, and jump in. So we are going to keep. Our current events segment very brief.、Uh, it's, it's already gone on a little longer than I probably should have, and,、uh, and we'll move right along right now into my interview with my best friend Cedrin Spalding.、Uh, right at the outset of the interview, I think I'm going to take a minute to read a tiny little bit from "Freedom" by By Jonathan Franz, and I, I know you probably have heard me say that that title and that author's name many, many times on the podcast. There's a, a section of freedom that I believe pertains to Cedrin's reading and and how it inspired me to to be a better reader. And、uh, I'd like to share that with you、uh, just before the interview begins. So we will head into that interview right after the page break. See you there. Pretty good, pretty good, man. How about yourself? I can't complain. I can't complain. I can't complain. It's been dead work. <laughs> I hear you. Come home and do more work. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the、uh, I think that's the norm, unfortunately, these days. So, what kind of work you been up to at home?、Uh, well, you know, helping to do the homework, filling out all the the school paperwork that feels like turning in, but. I don't know why they didn't give it to us a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> right, you know, right. You wanted to. I mean, you know, time is in effect. Well, I can go into big rants about effectively using your time during the day because it seems like nobody wants to do it. Right, right. I mean, if you had the open house, guess what? So they had lots of stuff to do in the past. So they could send it back to the kids at their school. Right. Is. You'll find out soon enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, we have Holden、uh, enrolled in preschool right now, so we're we're getting ready to get a little bitty taste of it.、Um, yeah. Yeah. The real taste of preschool. I hear you. So how was your day? Just another day at the office, man.、Uh, um, you know, I have、uh, I have a, a lane of eight students, and、uh, I had. Four of them today. My my other、uh, my lane partner had the other four, so it was a、uh, it was the first day. So they were they were, you know, 
not exactly operating at speed, but uh, but we'll we'll get them around by the end of the cycle. There you go. Yeah, yep. it's all a process, right? It's all a, it's everything's a process, my friend. Everything's a process. <laughs> true, true. So I'll, I'll remind you that I'm recording. I started recording like just before I called. Um, so probably the beginning of, of what we said may or may not make it on onto the podcast. What we were talking about just there. It uh, you know sometimes I, I put the whole thing on. Sometimes I edit it off. We'll see how that goes. Um, yeah, I trust you, Mr. Editor. <laughs> well, I, I don't know about <laughs> Mr. Editor, but I, I'm I'm certainly learning a little bit of sound production uh, as, as I go along here with this this crazy thing I've, I've started. Um, so, first of all, um, before we get like right into the interview, I want you to tell me, you know, what what you're willing to tell, uh, you know, the World Wide Web about yourself. Keeping in mind, this could this could be here when when the zombies take over or when the uh, when the aliens arrive. So uh, okay, but it only covers the next week, sir. So. <laughs> I, I hope not, man. <laughs> um, well, as you know, Lawrence, I'm Secret Spalding. Uh, you know, I've known you probably all my life, so yeah. to speak. Uh, Seems that way. From uh, yeah, kindergarten up to the present day. <laughs> Um, we grew up together. Um, currently, uh, I graduated from North Carolina A&T uh, State University, with a degree in political science. Um, currently, I'm working for the banking industry and have been doing so for the last five years. Nice. Um, like you, I am a very voracious reader. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I think you inspired uh, my, my uh, voracious love of books, I would say. And, uh, you know, even though I have slowed down somewhat now that I'm a parent to a seven-year-old, but I still try to pack uh, three to four books away a week. Right. Wow. Wow. Yeah, you're, you're definitely uh, definitely way ahead of me right now, man. It's been uh, it's been a slow year. Do you remember when we used to read, like, uh, 50 books, 100 books uh, as kids? Yeah. Right, so I, I tried that last year. Uh, I was I was deployed uh, to the Philippines, and so I decided I was going to read a hundred books while I was over there. Um, the deployment ended up being about a month shorter uh, than I than I thought it was going to be, and I think I knocked out just under sixty books, or maybe just at sixty books. But um, you know, of course, we were reading tiny little books back then, but uh, it, it turned out to be a lot harder for me now, you know, as a, as an adult, but. I mean, knocking out three a week, man. You're you're still rolling along. That's that's really yeah, impressive. The, the bad thing about that is, uh, you know, when you do that, you can pay attention to some things, and there's some things fall by the wayside. Uh, you know, trust me, I have enough laundry packed up to make it uh, not worthwhile. <laughs> yeah. So, so there are a few arguments with the with the wife that go along with those three books. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I guess I guess you know no one can can truly understand unless they understand that, that books come first, right? Well, you know, back in my mother used to laugh back in my collegiate days. She was like, you know, with your brother, you know, you can. I always had to worry about him, but I knew that if it came down to you having like a dollar to your name or getting a book, you probably you know get the book, and then bum food for your brother. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I, that sounds about right as I remember things. So, 
people yeah, are like, uh, are, you're walking in a straight line and you're reading a book at the same time. Aren't you going to run into a wall? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember those days. And, and I don't recall you ever running into any walls, so. No, no, thank God, thank God. <laughs> yeah, My definitely. ego probably couldn't have taken it at a young age. <laughs> I, I think you would have survived. So, now, are you in Greensboro these days or Winston-Salem? Winston-Salem. Winston-Salem? Okay. Which is only a hop skipping zone from Greensboro, about uh, 35 miles, and actually less than that since I'm on the edge of Winston. Right. Right off of, uh, right off of Clemson Road, actually. So, okay, well, don't, you know, don't tell everybody. Um, well, you know, that's as far as I'm going to go. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody's going to be looking for your house after hearing, uh, you know, unless well, somebody I mean, who's jealous it, how much you read. You need help putting up laundry. <laughs> yeah, put them to work when they get there, right? That's right. I hear you. I hear you. Well, listen, we'll get into the questions here in just a second. Um, I, you know, I we talked about uh, that that Jonathan Franzen passage that uh, that I wanted to to accompany this interview just uh, about how as when we were kids you you sort of inspired uh, you know uh, in part the love of books that I have today but I wasn't able to find it. it it was just too busy a day so I think I told you it would be earlier in uh, in the episode in, in which uh, your interview will appear so um, once that is all mixed down and everything I'll be sure and, uh, and send you a link and because uh, I really want to share that uh, that passage with you um, it, it's really beautiful writing. Jonathan Franzen is uh, is pretty amazing. Good. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So I'll, I'll get that to you uh, as soon as I can. But um, being that it's 8.16 p.m. and I left a baby upstairs not entirely asleep, we better get uh, into the interview here pretty quick. Okay. So. Um, All right. All right. I called you uh, last night and told you, uh, you know, kind of a, a little bit of a preview of, uh, of the five questions that I would be asking you tonight. So we'll, we'll get right into it right now. The first question is, it's a busy world these days. Uh, how do you find the time to read? Uh, well, it's a busy world. And, you know, one saving grace as far as, uh, you know, the portability of, of reading and being able to take reading on the go um, digital devices, um, you know, started with, uh, you know, probably loading books and websites from feature phones back in the late 90s. Mm, wow. um, so you've been with it for a minute, huh? Uh, you know, go ahead and, and, and get a textbook from uh, Project Gutenberg, load it onto a, a phone card. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, since it was free and you know, other than the cost, the bandwidth back then. And uh, it reminds me when I was a, a kid, uh, my just out of high school, and then my parents had the first uh, old school Macintosh Classics. <laughs> my mom had a login to several states. And I was used to jump on their Unix based system so I can access Gutenberg books. So my mom is like, what? why do I have $15 worth of phone calls to? <laughs> <laughs> right. Wow. See, you know, I did not realize that, that Project Gutenberg had, had been around that long, man. I, I thought it was uh, much newer than that. Oh, no, 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 no. These were, I mean, it used to be when I was doing it almost all like FTP and Git commands. 
Um, so having a GUI-based interface, you know, graphical user interface, right. is a lot friendlier. And that was that was the biggest refresh that I remember. Wow. Um, so from there, you know, pulling uh, digital books when I was in college, you know, uh, it was funny because the only way you could get a uh, A&T when I was there mm-hmm. to start off with to get a uh, email address and access to the mainframe computing, you had to sign up for a computer class for engineering, for engineering student. So I signed up for one computer class. <laughs> just so you so can get the, the mainframe access? Just so I can get my, yeah, just so I can get my addiction on. Right. Um, from there, um, you know, um, took a hiatus from school for a minute. At that point, you know, I'm lucky to be in the area such as the triad where there were used bookstores to feed the addiction while I was working full time. Right. Um, then uh, moving back to school, graduating, and moving into a career path. Mm-hmm. Uh, once again, you know, seeing the, a shift in my reading habits back to digital. Right. For the simple fact that, you know, do I want to carry around a book bag full of books and yeah. look professional? Or I can now, you know, with a smartphone, which I probably have close to 150 to 200 books on my smartphone, and 128 books on my uh, Windows 8 tablet. Right. So you, you never went so, the route of, of the Kindle or, or the Nook or, or any of the various e-readers well, out mean, there? My daughter did get me a Nook e-reader two years ago, the first generation Nook. And while there was, it's a good device, um, you know, and it still works fabulously. Um, I felt that the ecosystem was a little bit limited. So, right. Um, yeah, and, and if you are, mine. you know, if you're for a pure, you know, uh, ebook experience, of course, there's, uh, you know, the Kindle Paperwhite. Right. Is, you know, a great low cost way if you are a biblical file. Right. Know, but you're more of a digital guy anyway. So, you know, it, the, the, the backlit screen, all that sort of thing, doesn't really bother you much? Not really. I mean, and, and the thing about it, at this point, I rarely find myself, I mean, there have been huge jumps in uh, screen technology, moving from, you know, backlit to, you know, IPS screens and things like that. Um, the, you know, pixel uh, ratios are, you know, progressing. Um, you can actually get clearer and crisper pictures even two years ago. I mean, right, right. So, you know, as storage space and screen quality has improved, you know, you'd be, you wouldn't be surprised to hear how many colleges are just issuing an iPad or a tablet device and kids are downloading the textbooks. Wow, wow. Yeah. That's, yeah. I guess that's not good for the uh, textbook publishing industry, but certainly it's good for well, students. Well, I mean, the thing about it, actually, I would think that it would probably increase the revenue. Really? Well, think about it. You're no longer, you're just pushing out a digital product which doesn't have any variations from the typesetting, um, you know. Yeah, I, I suppose you're right. And, you know, often I will find that even a very old book, uh, once it becomes available on Kindle or uh, on on the Nook, um, is 
as expensive uh, as as any new book published. So yeah, it, you're probably right. The profit margin is probably is probably far greater with the with the digital experience. And the thing about it is, since they're no longer having to pay for the you know the raw paper printing press uh, that actually bound it, the glue, fiber, shipping, handling, it's a, it's a distribution change. Um, I'm really it's a really good time to look and see the future of digital publishing right now especially with the uh, you know the lawsuits against Apple as far as their you know uh, price setting collusions <laughs> right so, right so uh, you know and then hopefully in the next two to three years we will see a dynamic shake up uh, and it'll be really interesting to see where those apples fall yeah, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, listen. I think we answered um, a little bit of the third question there. So I'm I'm gonna um, move into the second question, which is uh, how do you decide what to read? I, re- I remember what what we used to read as, as kids. I mean, it, it was pretty uh, pretty sci-fi heavy. Um, what do you read these days, and, and how do you decide what to read? Oh uh, wow! What do I read nowadays? Actually. Huh. Of course, as I've gotten older, you know, my interests have broadened. I still love a, a great fantasy or sci-fi book as, as much as anything else. And I think I have a obligation to try to induct my daughter in the final points of uh, Doctor Who and things of that nature. But <laughs> that being said, um, also picking up, uh, you know, uh, more philosophy, more um, American classics, uh, you know, um, books on theology uh, well you know you become a little bit contemplative when we're starting to look at the big 4-0 yes so, um, absolutely you know I've noticed that you know I am picking up more books even in, in you know speculative fiction and, and fantasy more books that are wrestling with the concept of morality good and evil and a person's place in the hereafter Right, um, right. That seems to be a, uh, a thread uh, that has probably really started to evolve the last probably, I'd say, four to five years. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think that's what all books are about anyway, man. You know, I think uh, I think in, in essence, uh, or all good books anyway, uh, they, they can all be boiled down to that, to that sort of question, uh, in, at least in part. Um, but, but uh, yes, certainly... Um, you know, I think it, I agree with you. As I've gotten older, I've moved into more explicit uh, explorations of, of those themes. I, I read uh, Wittgenstein's uh, Magnus Opus last year, um, and, and that was actually pretty interesting. And, and I was actually drawn to it uh, uh, via a fiction novel by Percival Everett. Um, he's, he's one of my favorite authors. Uh, he, he teaches out somewhere in California. But uh, I, I would definitely agree with you. I, I, it's, I guess it's probably getting old. That, uh, that makes us think about those things so much. I mean, you think about it, you know, in another, you know, in another 30-odd years, I'll be my dad's age now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, I'm, I try and, not uh, to think about say, that. Well, I mean, the thing about it, you know, uh, as we were kids, you know, we looked at our fathers as Superman, and they were, you know, <laughs> you know, doing, you know, 12 to 14 hours of work a day. And coming in and still making time for us and things like that, and they never seem fatigued. It 
now, you know. <laughs> now we know that they were at their wits end, constantly yeah, so tired, they, and probably right. heavily medicated, at least as far as Motrin is concerned in my case. <laughs> exactly. You know, the thing about it, you know, a great musician never shows how, how much effort goes into the trick. Right, right. Yeah. Um, You're absolutely right. You know, with my dad having, uh, you know, my dad having a stroke and knee surgery last year, um, questions of what lies after have definitely been more prevalent. Right. So what have you read uh, lately with regard to, to those questions? Uh, right now, um, actually, um, it's funny that you mentioned it, uh, Kratt opened a uh, new book this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm about a, maybe 100, 130 pages at the end. Uh, Crazy. Tactic. A game plan for discussion of Christian convictions mm-hmm. by Gregory uh, Pokel. Um, it's pretty good. Um, I do like it. Um, it is a different, it's so much different of an approach. It's highlighting how to effectively promote Christian beliefs for a common layperson. Right, and right. Pretty much uh, in simple, how to do simple, not offensive approaches to um, non Christians. Mm hmm. Um, and what's very, very rare, is, uh, one of the cornerstones of the book is uh, discussions about how to avoid common logical traps and fallacies right. when speaking with people. So, you know, um, that's not something that you see often in uh, a pairing of logical analysis and communication skills right. with the subject of religion. So, yeah, know, I, I it's... It, it's almost uh, it's almost scriptural, you know. Uh, how, how does it go? You you should be as meek as the lamb, but but also as as clever as the serpent. Exactly. Paraphrase <laughs> one of the, you know, speaking from the, the idea of tactics and, and coming from a military background, for yourself, you can definitely appreciate, you know, tactics and strategy and getting your point across, yet not offending anybody to the point of shutting you out. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's the crux of my uh, of my job uh, when when it, when I'm practicing it rather than, than teaching it. Uh, um, so yeah, that's that's certainly uh, something I'm, I'm at least mildly familiar with. So speaking of, along those lines, uh, do, one of the books that that you introduced me to, I don't know if you even remember introducing it to me. It was, it was probably something you read and and. Uh, and Threw down, uh, and you know, because you were reading so many books back then. I just remember uh, at the halls of, of our elementary school and our high school, just you, just always carrying around like tons of books, uh, and most of them weren't textbooks. But um, the Screw Tape Letters is is uh, yeah, yeah, man, I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've read that book over the years, and how many copies of it I've given away. I've, I've probably given away hundreds of dollars worth. Of, uh, of the screw tape letters um, I, I always thought Lewis had some of the most instructive uh, uh, philosophical and or uh, you know just instructional uh, ability with regard to uh, the, the teaching of, of Christianity um, I, I you know his, his work is uh, his body of work is just incredible with regard to that whole question um, you, you still read any Lewis yes um, Ashley, you know, Ashley was on my radar to introduce my, my daughter to the uh, to the wardrobe series, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, because uh, she has she's vaguely aware that you know 
Disney made movies. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, at age seven, like, what's that movie? It's like, yeah. But, you know, the lion is a metaphor for Christ and and it's just sacrifices. You know, a lot of the elements from biblical scripts are, are, are basically represented in a way that a kid could have a, a more empathetic feel. Right. To have someone sacrifice themselves on your behalf. Right. For right. to redeem your your mess ups, your failures, your foibles. So. Yeah. That that was on my thing for you know coming up. It's like she's you know time to start challenging her a little bit more with her reading material. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, is is your daughter as voracious a reader as you are? Have, have has that bug already bitten her? Well, I'm trying to do my best to instill it. Um, you know, and it's funny because my wife is definitely, um, while, um, while she is uh, very intelligent, um, she is not by nature a voracious reader, mm-hmm. unless unless she's uh, you know on her um, ADHD medication. <laughs> then she can for, for hours and just absorb book after book. But, right. You know, yeah, but. Um, definitely want to instill that, you know, one of the discussions where, you know, hey, you know, she was like, wow, Dad, you read a lot. I was like, yeah. Uh, the faster you read, the more you read, the more versed you'll be to deal with moments you're not aware of right. when they arrive. Yeah, you don't know what you don't know. Exactly. So, cool. Well, we are, we're going to skip the third question, which is talk a little bit about books as objects. Uh, I, I think uh, it's clear to, to say that you're uh, probably leaning a little more toward the digital side of things. Now, um, I, I, I haven't been to your house as an adult, which is, uh, you know, shocking and disappointing uh, considering, uh, you know, um, how close we are, how close we were in, in high school and in elementary school. But are, do you have a, like a, a house full of books or is it, or is it mostly digital over there? Thanks to my wife uh, having several ultimatums. <laughs> <laughs> you you now have to have room for furniture and books. Well, <laughs> you if I mean, let me be diplomatic here. Um, before becoming a parent, you would not have, and especially you know, before the advent of you know me moving toward. Uh, a more professional career uh-huh. you wouldn't have had enough room to do anything but sit on books right right as um, I imagined it at this point uh, thanks to you know places like uh, In the Cave and uh, Winston Salem and Greensboro you know uh, when I was doing uh, hands-on hardcover and software books um, I was often convinced to Recycled them for store credit. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, the, the right. wife. Uh, <laughs> she she put so some uh, some limits on you. Probably, oh yeah, oh yeah. At, at this point, there's probably about a uh, only about three hundred to four hundred hard copies of books scattered around the house. Right, right. As, as if that we, isn't enough. Huh? Oh well, you know, my in my room as a uh, in my parents old house in my old room you'll catch about 500 books right there on the shelf right um, right I'm sure of it my parents said that they counted about another 
my mom said another 5,000 books in, in a storage facility behind their house. Wow. Wow. And, uh, roughly 30,000 comic books she counted. Whew. Now, and unlike myself, I mean, I have a ton of books around here that I haven't read, man. You've probably read, what, 90% of those books? If not all um, of them? Probably, I would say probably closer to 99, at least 98% of the hardcover books here have been read. Right, right. As, as far as, I mean, there are, my wife has one or two odd books that, you know, I have no interest in reading. <laughs> um, for example, you know, this copy of the Joy Luck Club I'm looking at. <laughs> I have the Joy Luck Club around here somewhere. You're not an Amy exactly. Tan. Um, it's probably Amy Tan. I, um, I took a little Mandarin. Janet Jackson autobiography. <laughs> I know that's required reading, man. You 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 haven't delved into that yet. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. 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 Uh, oh, I leave my wife for a little bit along. Uh, even in here's book, I'm sure that he is a a devastated, devastatingly powerful author for you know the ones to to read his work. I really have never been tempted to open up a Elian Harris book, but those right. are those are around here because my wife picked those up. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Hey, hang on one second, TJ. I'm going to have to pause this for one second and run upstairs and take care of some baby business. Uh, don't hang up. I'll be right back, okay? All right. Mm-hmm. All right, brother man, I'm back. Yes, sir. Thank you for waiting. No, my pleasure. So we were talking about your collection of Elin Harris books and how much you love to read them. Um, uh, I, I don't understand how you quite misconstrued my words. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm about to stand up and, and pick that battle, sir. So, you know. I hear you, man. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I, at the risk of uh, of revealing my my ignorance of uh, of current uh, great literary reads, I, I haven't ever picked up an Edelin Harris book either. So, I'm not going to go that far. While claiming I probably moved one from one area to another. <laughs> Okay, right, right. So I've at least literally picked it up. Right. Opening it? No, but I've at least picked it up. Got you, got you. All right. Well, listen, I uh, I, I only bought myself a reprieve from the uh, from the baby business upstairs. So much uh, much to my dismay, I'm, I'm going to ask you these last two questions. But uh, but we'll have to do this again. Um, maybe we can do it in person uh, next time because I, um, I I feel like this we, we've only uh, touched the, the tip of the iceberg here. Um, and and I really want to. I don't know if you wanted to, to dedicate like 40 minutes to an hour. I, <laughs> I, I'd like to dedicate at least that much, um, and and certainly, you know, um, uh, just with regard to, um, you know, picking your brain for some for some good titles. Um, okay. So, um, so here are the last two questions. Um, the first one is this: What's your favorite book of all time, and why? And if, and if, you know, I realize it's a difficult question. I, I had a lot of trouble with it myself when I when I quote unquote interviewed myself. I, I realize that I have no idea what my favorite book of all time is, but but maybe you do. So what is it? Uh, you would have one of probably the hardest question in the world for to, me. Yes, of of uh, any reader, I think. But but what do you got? Uh, I would probably say the book that had the biggest impact on me as a reader 
I want to say it's my favorite, but probably the biggest impact of a book as a probably came from my youth. Uh, probably Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game. Oh man, yeah. I see. I um, forgot all about that when I was thinking of my favorite. You you gave me that book. I, I I may even still have the copy that you gave me somewhere. Oh, awesome, awesome. <laughs> a paperback. But, uh, You're not getting it back either. Yeah. Oh no, no. I you know get copies. I'll, I'll probably give them. That's my, probably my version of Screwtape Weber. I'll probably give them that book away probably a dozen times or more um, since high school. Uh, right. That is probably the biggest single book that had an impact on me and my way of thinking and my way of looking at the world. Um, you know, I do not agree with uh, the statements that Mr. Carter said concerning, uh, you know, certain groups a minority. However, I do respect the work that he crafted in that first book. Yeah, um, and even the rest of them weren't weren't terrible. I mean, and, and a few of the yeah. the ones that followed were, were actually really really good. Um, um, Secret of the Dead and Exogenesis, I think, were the others. Yeah, Z- Xenocide really um, was one, yeah. I think. Uh, yeah, he he really yeah. he really got in the weeds with that whole uh, Ender, you know, with with the whole family and, and with what happened. Right, the first book was a very clean very clean delineated book with excellent character development as far as the disconnect from of youth um, and their inability to, to relate to people outside of their generation right yeah and vice versa I mean the, the whole being you know being an outsider there probably was only the sense of that kind of weight Emotionally, on Ender was probably only in another book I can compare it to is probably um, Catch Twenty Two. Right, right. Joseph I mean, Heller, you know, which is another one. That, but you know, the difference between you know Ender Game spoke to me and my interest far more. I mean, and uh, you know, pretty much you know when I think about high school. If you weren't there for me to, you know, talk to and have conversations with, I probably would have been, you know, far more antisocial and introverted than I would normally be. Right. Well, you know, I, you know, I, I would, I would uh, disagree with with any characterization of you as an introvert. I think it was more that the rest of us, uh, you know, struggle to uh, to to even figure out a way to to uh, approach uh, your your intellect and and your. Uh, you know what? What we could could sense even then is your your intellectual potential. So, um, uh, yeah, an introvert. I don't think is, is exactly descriptive. But uh. um, well, my <laughs> point is that if, if if you can't find people to who you can communicate with, you might as well not communicate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess you're right. Yeah, um, I, like my mom said that you know, up until almost tenth uh, grade, she said you know. At one point, she thought I was autistic. <laughs> really? Because, you know, well, this is what she said. She was like, "You would come, you would come in from uh, school, do your homework." She's like, "Other than you know, normal kid mess ups or stuff like that." She's like, "We didn't know that you were. I mean, we never had to do anything for you." 
Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so self-sufficient as a whole. And so, you know, you know, your brother would come and, and talk to us and, and interact with us. And you would, you know, go back do your homework. And then go back to your room and read a book. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess uh, nowadays, there, you know, a, a diagnosis of, of Asperger's or, or some sort of broad spectrum of autism might might have, uh, you know, been might might yeah. have been thrown at you. So, yeah, especially with you know, but the thing about it, where we came up in that area in the state at that period of time. <laughs> we weren't very many hours, right? Where right. You express yourself in any way, so you know. Yeah, I, there was a joke, man, uh, and I, and I don't agree with this joke. Uh, uh, some of my colleagues made it. Uh, you know, being being uh, on on an army base and being in an office full full of green berets, uh, um, people like to make fun of North Carolina, uh, oftentimes, and. I remember when uh, when the the secret got out that I had a podcast uh, or that I was starting a podcast. Um, everyone joked that uh, in North Carolina I, I might be considered some sort of magi- magician for for being able to read. It, it was you know really wow. really cruel joke, <laughs> but but we did we did have a laugh over it. Um, so yeah, oftentimes our, our lovely state, which which I personally love. Uh, isn't held in, in such high esteem uh, by, you know, some of my colleagues. So, yeah. <laughs> well, the, you know, the thing about it, you know, and, and to an extent, you know, really lucky. Um, and, you know, at least we were in the, you know, college prep classes that, you know, gave us outlets or, you know, exposed us to new things and, and it, at least tried to attempt to challenge us. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose we were lucky. I mean, looking, looking back, you know, of course, hindsight of twenty twenty. You know, when I, you know, for the first probably ten years outside of high school, I said, "Oh man, they could have done so much, so much better." As far as you know, then I preparation, actual preparation. Uh, yes, but then the shoe dropped, and I was like, "Well, actually, they could have done so much worse too." That's true. That's true. As I get as I get older, you know, you learn to appreciate what people did for me right right know. yeah i wouldn't change a thing i wouldn't change a thing so all right well listen last question and and like i said I, i'm uh, i'm gonna ask you this and and uh with, with the with the intention that we'll get together in person and uh, and have this interview again and we'll talk about some other things um but what are you reading right now uh what am i reading right now um uh, the ashley detective book that i mentioned earlier right That's what i'm reading right now as of this as of this great day starting it and I'll probably finish it before I go to bed (laughs) (laughs) jeez yeah I envy you that Um, well it would have been done already but today was a very busy day at work (laughs) I hear ya ya. wow well what what else you got what what did you finish yesterday and what do you plan to read tomorrow (laughs) let's see what I finished yesterday yesterday I read let's see a, a guilty pleasure read. Uh, don't don't be don't be shy. Let let's have it. No no no. <laughs> I think it was uh, was it the Midnight Squad? Some I had an Amazon gift card at work and just uh, bought some mindless uh, pleasure reading, which actually was somewhat deeper than I thought it would be. But right. Um. Yeah. Can't remember the author right hand offhand because it wasn't something that you know. Um, jumped at me. Um, 
I am also juggling um, The Fires of Paratime, Paratime by Ellie Modison Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of his earlier works. And while decent by, you know, almost, it's a, a hard enough read, you can tell that uh, um, his later works were much better. <laughs> right. You know. Yeah. That, uh, I mean, that's currently what I have out on the table at the moment. Yeah. One one uh, physical book and two digital books that I'm working through. Okay. Okay. Well, man, listen, I, uh, when we get together, and it, and it really should be soon, I want you, uh, you know, being, uh, knowing how little time it'll, it'll take you to read this book, I really want you to read Freedom by Jonathan Franzen because my wife and I have gotten into like some knockdown, drag out fights about this book. And What's it Freedom. Freedom. Yes, okay. by Jonathan Franzen. Uh, and I, I'd really love to, to get your opinion on it. I, I read it in a, in a single sitting. I, I was, uh, at, at the airport on, on the way to Bangladesh, and uh, and I started it, and it grabbed me so hard, man, that by the time the plane landed, I, I was done with it, and I was, I was uh, you know, furious and, and, and elated and amazed uh, at, at the book, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I recommend it to, to anyone and everyone, um, but certainly I want you to read it, like, you know, sometime soon, and, and, and when we get together, we'll talk about it. All right, I'll see if I can uh, snag a copy either uh, from the Nook Library or the uh, Kindle Store and let you drop your line um, when I'm done with it. Okay, okay, that sounds good. And, uh, uh, you know, at the... At the uh at the risk of, of revealing, um, you know, I, I guess there's nothing wrong with letting a friend borrow a book. So if you if uh, if you like, I can send it to you digitally as well. I mean, it, that would be no different than if I uh, sent you my physical copy. I, I have a digital and a physical copy. Um, so um, if you if you can't get a hold of it, just send me a, a, a text or something like that, and I'll, I'll email it to you. Okay. So. All right, man. Well, I'm I'm overdue upstairs, so I better head up there before I get in big trouble with the with the missus. Um, thank you so much, man, for uh, for answering the phone tonight and uh, and talking to me. Well, I hope this uh, you know gives you at least a two point five times the hits that you're used to on your podcast. <laughs> yeah, it, well, that if if two point five people listen to it, uh, then <laughs> then, then it, it should do just that. So I think I'm uh, sometimes I think I'm the only one listening, um, but I, I don't think that's entirely the case. Uh, I have some some loyal friends out there who, who listen in from time to time. So and certainly you'd better listen to at least this episode. So definitely, yeah. definitely. Let me know when it's up, and I'll be happy to check it out. Okay, brother. Um, have a have a great night, man. Uh, I, I I'll talk to you soon, uh, and I won't record the conversation. Okay. All right, sir. All right. Good night. Good night. Things fall apart. Chenua Achibe.
Turning and turning in the widening gear, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the sinner cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. W.B. Yeats, The Second Coming Things Fall Apart Part 1 Chapter 1 Okonkwo was well known throughout the nine villages and even beyond. His fame rested on solid personal achievements. As a young man of eighteen, he had brought honor to his village by throwing Amalens the cat. Amalens was the great wrestler who for seven years was unbeaten, from Umofia to Mbeno. He was called the cat because his back would never touch the earth. It was this man that Okonkwo threw in a fight, which the old men agreed was one of the fiercest since the founder of their town engaged a spirit of the wild for seven days and seven nights. The drums beat and the flutes sang and the spectators held their breath. Amalens was a wily craftsman, but Okonkwo was as slippery as a fish in water. Every nerve and every muscle stood out on their arms, on their backs and their thighs, and one almost heard them stretching to breaking point. In the end, Okonkwo threw the cat. That was many years ago, twenty years or more, and during this time, Okonkwo's fame had grown like a bushfire in the Harmattan. He was tall and huge, and his bushy eyebrows and wide nose gave him a very severe look. He breathed heavily, and it was said that when he slept, his wives and children in their houses could hear him breathe. When he walked, his heels hardly touched the ground, and he seemed to walk on springs as if he was going to pounce on somebody. And he did pounce on people quite often. He had a slight stammer, and whenever he was angry and could not get his words out quickly enough, he would use his fists. He had no patience with unsuccessful men. He had had no patience with his father. Unoka, for that was his father's name, had died ten years ago. In his day, he was lazy and improvident and was quite incapable of thinking about tomorrow. If any money came his way, and it seldom did, he immediately bought gourds of palm wine, called round his neighbors, and made merry. He always said that whenever he saw a dead man's mouth he saw the folly of not eating what one had in one's lifetime. Unoka was, of course, a debtor, and he owed every neighbor some money, from a few calories to quite substantial amounts. 
He was tall but very thin and had a slight stoop. He wore a haggard and mournful look, except when he was drinking or playing on his flute. He was very good on his flute, and his happiest moments were the two or three moons after the harvest, when the village musicians brought down their instruments, hung above the fireplace. Unoka would play with them, his face beaming with blessedness and peace. Sometimes another villager would ask Unoka's band and their dancing Egwogwu to come and stay with them and teach them their tunes. They would go to such hosts for as long as three or four markets, making music and feasting. Unoka loved the good fare and the good fellowship, and he loved this season of the year when the rains had stopped and the sun rose every morning with a dazzling beauty. And it was not too hot either, because the cold and dry Harmattan wind was blowing down from the north. Some years the Harmattan was very severe and a dense haze hung on the atmosphere. Old men and children would then sit round log fires warming their bodies. Unoka loved it all, and he loved the first kites that returned with the dry season and the children who sang songs of welcome to them. He would remember his own childhood, how he had often wandered around looking for a kite sailing leisurely against the blue sky. As soon as he found one, he would sing with his whole being, welcoming it back from its long, long journey, and asking it if it had brought home any lengths of cloth. That was years ago, when he was young. Unoka the grown-up was a failure. He was poor, and his wife and children had barely enough to eat. People laughed at him because he was a loafer, and they swore never to lend him any more money because he never paid back. But Unoka was such a man that he always succeeded in borrowing more and piling up his debts. One day, a neighbor called Okoyi came in to see him. He was reclining on a mud bed in his hut, playing on the flute. He immediately rose and shook hands with Okoyi, who then unrolled the goatskin which he carried under his arm and sat down. Unoka went into an inner room and soon returned with a small wooden disc containing a cola nut some alligator pepper, and a lump of white chalk. I have cola, he announced when he sat down, and passed the disc over to his guest. Thank you. He who brings cola brings life. But I think you ought to break it, replied Okoye, passing back the disc. No, it is for you, I think. And they argued like this for a few moments, before Unoka accepted the honor of breaking the cola. Okoye, meanwhile, took the lump of chalk, drew some lines on the floor, and then painted his big toe. As he broke the cola, 
Unoku prayed to their ancestors for life and health and for protection against their enemies. When they had eaten, they talked about many things, about the heavy rains which were drowning the yams, about the next ancestral feast, and about the impending war with the village of Mbeno. Unoka was never happy when it came to wars. He was in fact a coward and could not bear the sight of blood. And so he changed the subject and talked about music, and his face beamed. He could hear in his mind's eye the blood-stirring and intricate rhythms of the Ekwi and the Udu and the Ojin, and he could hear his own flute weaving in and out of them, decorating them with a colorful and plaintive tune. The total effect was gay and brisk, but if one picked out the flute as it went up and down and then broke up into short snatches, one saw that there was sorrow and grief there. Okoyi was also a musician. He played on the Ojin, but he was not a failure like Unoka. He had a large barn full of yams, and he had three wives. And now he was going to take the Irimili title, the third highest in the land. It was a very expensive ceremony, and he was gathering all his resources together. That was in fact the reason why he had come to see Unoka. He cleared his throat and began. Thank you for the cola. You may have heard of the title I intend to take shortly. Having spoken plainly so far, Okoye said the next half a dozen sentences in Proverbs. Among the Igbo, the art of conversation is regarded very highly, and Proverbs are the palm oil with which words are eaten. Okoye was a great talker, and he spoke for a long time, skirting round the subject and then hitting it finally. In short, he was asking Unoka to return the two hundred cowries he had borrowed from him more than two years before. As soon as Unoka understood what his friend was driving at, he burst out laughing. He laughed loud and long, and his voice rang out clear as the ogene, and tears stood in his eyes. His visitor was amazed and sat speechless. At the end, Unoka was able to give an answer between fresh outbursts of mirth. Look at that wall, he said, pointing at the far wall of his hut, which was rubbed with red earth so that it shone. Look at those lines of chalk, and Okoye saw groups of short perpendicular lines drawn in chalk. There were five groups, and the smallest group had ten lines. Unoka had a sense of the dramatic, and so he allowed a pause in which he took a pinch of snuff and sneezed noisily, and then he continued. Each group there represents a debt to someone, and each stroke is one hundred calories. You see, I owe that man a thousand calories, but he has not come to wake me up in the morning for it. I shall pay you, but not today. 
Our elders say that the sun will shine on those who stand before it shines on those who kneel under them. I shall pay my big debts first. And he took another pinch of snuff, as if that was paying the big debts first. Okoye rolled his goatskin and departed. When Unoka died, he had taken no title at all, and he was heavily in debt. Any wonder, then, that his son Okonkwo was ashamed of him. Fortunately, among these people, a man was judged according to his worth, and not according to the worth of his father. Okonkwo was clearly cut out for great things. He was still young, but he had won fame as the greatest wrestler in the nine villages. He was a wealthy farmer and had two barns full of yams, and he had just married his third wife. To crown it all, he had taken two titles and had shown incredible prowess in two intertribal wars. And so, although Okonkwo was still young, he was already one of the greatest men of his time. Age was respected among his people, but achievement was revered. As the elders said, if a child washed his hands, he could eat with kings. Okonkwo had clearly washed his hands, and so he ate with kings and elders. And that was how he came to look after the doomed lad who was sacrificed to the village of Umofia by their neighbors to avoid war and bloodshed. The ill-fated lad was called Ikimifuna. Chapter 2 Okankwo had just blown out the palm oil lamp and stretched himself on his bamboo bed when he heard the ojin of the town crier piercing the still night air. Gum, 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 boomed the hollow metal. Then the crier gave his message, and at the end of it, beat his instrument again. And this was the message. Every man of Umofia was asked to gather at the marketplace tomorrow morning. Okankwo wondered what was amiss, for he knew certainly that something was amiss. He had discerned a clear overtone of tragedy in the crier's voice, and even now he could still hear it as it grew dimmer and dimmer in the distance. The night was very quiet. It was always quiet except on moonlight nights. Darkness held a vague terror for these people, even the bravest among them. Children were warned not to whistle at night for fear of evil spirits. Dangerous animals became even more sinister and uncanny in the dark. A snake was never called by its name at night, because it would hear. It was called a string. And so on this particular night, as the crier's voice was gradually swallowed up in the distance, silence returned to the world, a vibrant silence made more intense by the universal trill of a million million forest insects. On a moonlight night, it would be different. 
the happy voices of children playing in open fields would then be heard. And perhaps those not so young would be playing in pairs in less open places, and old men and women would remember their youth. As the Igbo say, when the moon is shining, the cripple becomes hungry for a walk. But this particular night was dark and silent, and in all the nine villages of Umofia, a town crier with his ogene asked every man to be present tomorrow morning. Okonkwo, on his bamboo bed, tried to figure out the nature of the emergency. War with the neighboring clan? That seemed the most likely reason, and he was not afraid of war. He was a man of action, a man of war. Unlike his father, he could stand the look of blood. In Umofia's latest war, he was the first to bring home a human head. That was his fifth head, and he was not an old man yet. On great occasions, such as the funeral of a village celebrity, he drank his palm wine from his first human head. In the morning, the marketplace was full. There must have been about 10,000 men there, all talking in low voices. At last, Ogbwifi Ezugo stood up in the midst of them and bellowed four times, Umofia Quinu! And on each occasion, he faced a different direction and seemed to push the air with a clenched fist, and ten thousand men answered, Yah! each time. Then there was a perfect silence. Ogbufi Izigu was a powerful orator, and was always chosen to speak on such occasions. He moved his hand over his white head and stroked his white beard. He then adjusted his cloth, which was passed under his right armpit and tied above his left shoulder. Umofia Quinu, he bellowed a fifth time, and the crowd yelled in answer. And then suddenly, like one possessed, he shot out his left hand and pointed in the direction of Mbeno, and said through gleaming white teeth, firmly clenched, those sons of wild animals have dared to murder a daughter of Umofia. He threw his head down and gnashed his teeth and allowed a murmur of suppressed anger to sweep the crowd. When he began again, the anger on his face was gone, and in its place a sort of smile hovered, more terrible and more sinister than the anger. And in a clear, unemotional voice, he told Umofia how their daughter had gone to market at Mbeno and had been killed. That woman, said Uzego, was the wife of Ogbuifi Udo, and he pointed to a man who sat near him with a bowed head. The crowd then shouted with anger and thirst for blood. Many others spoke and at the end it was decided to follow the normal course of action. An ultimatum was immediately dispatched to Mbeno, asking them to choose between war on the one hand, and on the other, the offer of a young man and a virgin as compensation. 
Umofia was feared by all its neighbors. It was powerful in war and in magic, and its priests and medicine men were feared in all the surrounding country. Its most potent war medicine was as old as the clan itself. Nobody knew how old. But on one point, there was general agreement. The active principle in that medicine had been an old woman with one leg. In fact, the medicine itself was called Agadi Nwayi, or Old Woman. It had its shrine in the center of Umofia, in a cleared spot. And if anybody was so foolhardy as to pass by the shrine after dusk, he was sure to see the old woman hopping about. And so the neighboring clans who naturally knew of these things feared Umofia and would not go to war against it without first trying a peaceful settlement. And in fairness to Umofia, it should be recorded that it never went to war unless its case was clear and just and was accepted as such by its oracle, the oracle of the hills and the caves. And there were indeed occasions when the oracle had forbidden Umofia to wage a war. If the clan had disobeyed the oracle, they would have surely been beaten, because their dreaded Agadi Nwayi would never fight what the Igbo called a fight of blame. But the war that now threatened was a just war. Even the enemy clan knew that. And so when Okonkwo of Umofia arrived at Mbeno as the proud and imperious emissary of war, he was treated with great honor and respect. And two days later, he returned home with a lad of fifteen and a young virgin. The lad's name was Ikimifuna, whose sad story is still told in Umofia unto this day. The elders, or Ndichi, met to hear a report of Okonkwo's mission. At the end they decided, as everybody knew they would, that the girl should go to Obwifi Udo to replace his murdered wife. As for the boy, he belonged to the clan as a whole, and there was no hurry to decide his fate. Okonkwo was therefore asked, on behalf of the clan, to look after him in the interim. And so for three years, Ikimifuna lived in Okonkwo's household. Hey, while you're still sitting there, that's it, folks. The end of another episode of It's in a Book. Thank you very, very much for coming along for the ride. Thanks again to my very good friend, Cedron Spaulding, and to Chinua Achibe for writing such a wonderful novel. I really suggest that you run out and get your hands on a copy and read it as soon as you can. You definitely won't regret it. The end is uh, particularly poignant and, uh, and sad in light of, of all that transpires. Um, <clears throat> a few a few notes. Uh, first of all, it's been a while since the last podcast, but if you tuned in, you recall that my sister-in-law uh, <laughs> accused us of having a, a flea market <laughs> with regard to uh, uh, our decor. And my wife was, although not offended, uh, 
certainly compelled to insist that I point out that our decor uh, certainly not minimal it isn't as quite as uh, as quite as like an episode of Porters as Kim would like to believe uh, so there I've discharged my duty with regard to my lovely spouse uh, once again I apologize for that the podcast was so long in the tooth as far as getting out on time the next one will definitely be on time if not a little early um, I have a couple of interviews already lined up and uh, and I will try and make sure that everything else falls into place uh, I guess that's uh, that's it folks uh, I will see you here in no later than two weeks thanks for listening it's in a book Bye-bye. Okay, so throughout the show, I, I promised a little passage from Freedom by Jonathan Franz, and that sort of uh, described the the way that Cedron had uh, affected me as a child with regard to uh, to being a reader and, and, in general, being a good guy. Cedron, Cedron was always a really good guy, uh, whereas... Uh, most of, uh, of my peers and uh, the other guys that I hung out with were, were more like myself, just sort of puerile and, and um, adolescent, appropriately so, and, and uh, st- stupid little boys. Um, whereas Cedron, uh, morally and otherwise, uh, was far more of a man. So uh, the the passage doesn't apply as, as much as I as I thought it did. Uh, it, it, it actually applies perfectly, but it, it, it's sort of a non-secular with regard to um, how it sounds like it applies. But I'm going to read it anyway because I promised it throughout the show, so here it is really, really quickly. Um, it, it's definitely going to be uh, anticlimactic uh, with all the build-up. It goes something like this. Um, and Richard in his stalwart, if unconvincing way, was doing his best to be a good man, good man in scare quotes, now that she'd lost Walter. She didn't love Richard a lot, but she did somewhat love him for this effort. Although even here, let the record show, she was actually loving Walter, because it was Walter who'd put the idea of being a good man into Richard's head. So uh, I, I suppose it was Cedron who, who put the idea of, of being a, a reader and, and even of being a, a good man into my head. Uh, so at any rate, like I said, anticlimactic, non-secular. See you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye.